Hello and welcome back to True Crime Guys Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and if you didn't think I brought Andy with me today, you're dang crazy. I mean, I don't think you actually brought me. I think it was more like you lured me. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever, Andy. I, I brought you here. I'm here. Okay? Uh, listen, I'm here. I, I helped create the events to bring you here today. <laughs> this was a On ruse. purpose. This was a ruse. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Andy, you're well aware of our engagement. Okay. Uh, so I guess first things first, I don't know if we can have an episode this close to the Super Bowl and not say something about the Super Bowl. But me and Andy were talking before the show. It's like there's all kinds of reasons for people to lose their shit uh, over the Super Bowl because people bet on literally everything. Well, I mean, they bet on every game. Yeah, every I mean, game. Every game, be. every sport is now. I mean, it's being betted on and all across uh, the states. I don't know how it is in other countries, but all uh, it's spreading like wildfire across the United States. Sports betting is like the new shit. And I think uh, it, we kind of have to to save live sports. I mean, yes, to I an think extent. We kinda too. I mean, because it was, live sports became so much advertising and so much brand and so much like who's yeah. sponsored by who and who's going to yeah. make sure they're good for this deal. And it's like, yep. nah, how, how am I going to enjoy this now? I need to actually enjoy this. I'm just going to bet 50 bucks that that guy breaks a, like, breaks a leg in there the you quarter go. three. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you're betting on. Exactly. You find yourself cheering for the weirdest shit, but, you know, it's it's still people watching. Mm-hmm. So they're genius in that, I guess. Like, I need the second string fullback to get eight more yards. God damn it. <laughs> Listen, we, you know, the NFL, we, we never said they were any slouch in marketing. No, they they know what they're doing. Exactly. Speaking of marketing, make sure you guys check out our Patreon. Right, <gasps> See? Patreon.com slash true crime guys. Uh, no, but guys, we have a lot of things going on here. TCG Productions. Uh, first and foremost, Sandu Proper is back. It was on hiatus. It, it was, was just, on hiatus. It was in for hibernation. <laughs> that wintertime hibernation. Deep hibernation. Um, but it is back. And I let Andy host one. I mean, finally. I, I did, finally. I think he's, you know, he's he's earned his stripes. I thought, you know, why not let you take this one on your own, buddy? Take, take the training wheels off. That's right. <laughs> Just push them out there. <laughs> push on them down the Sandu. <laughs> and, and he did great. No, guys, check out the recent episode on Sandu Proper, Strange and Unexplained, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, it was on George Reeves, uh, one of the original actors who portrayed Superman back in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And his death is incredibly weird. It's at least suspicious. It is definitely like... Andy, it is so easily suspicious. It is so much like, none of this adds up. God damn it. None of it adds up. And Where's it's Batman weird, we need him? Just the point he was in his career, and uh, I don't know. He he had made some enemies, let's say that. But still, even with all that considered, extremely suspicious death. Check that out, guys. Uh, like, again, Strange Unexplained, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we have new music available on Spotify uh, as an artist. So check out True Crime Guys wherever you listen to music. If you're a fan of the intros that we put in these episodes and whatnot, you can find a lot of them there. And if you don't find one you like, you know, hit me up. Maybe I'll post it if I'm feeling generous. <laughs> I don't know. But today we have a doozy of a case. It's an old one, Andy, okay? So uh, so right off the bat, I want to I wanna warn of uh, child violence, okay? Violence yeah. towards children in this episode. Now, uh, and it's 1912. I say that like that helps. It really doesn't uh, mm. with with violence towards children. I think overall, it helps to digest the whole case. Yeah. Right? Because with this, like this one, for instance, being an axe murderer, we're a little more prepared against axe murderers nowadays. To extent, We yeah. like to think. We yeah. like to think. Um, but this case in particular happened sometime around midnight, June 9th. Uh, well, sometime between June 9th and June 10th, obviously, 1912, a single person or persons, Andy, let's leave that open too, we'll discuss that later, entered a home in Villisca, Iowa, 
and bludgeoned to death eight people who were sleeping there. A family of six, and then uh, their oldest daughter had two friends who were sleeping over, and the children aged, all the children aged five to 12. Mm-hmm. So the killings became known as the Velisca Axe Murders and are easily the most notorious murders in Iowa history. The murders also spawned nearly 10 years of investigations, repeated jury hearings, a slander suit, and a murder trial, and numerous other litigations and trials. This crime literally made and broke political careers, Andy. It made a lot, it just broke a lot of people in the long run, too. It did. And if you if you look into axe murders throughout history, just in the U.S. alone, there is an astounding number. Okay, let me go ahead and say, especially late 1800s to early 1900s, okay? And so many of them have been forgotten. Yeah. It's Except for this one. It's surprising, too, that, like, axes were such a such a prominent murder weapon at that time. Like, people well, had everybody gun. had them, though. Well, I know, but people also had, everybody was carrying a knife at that point. Everyone usually had a, a pocket knife or, like, a, a sheathed knife. Yeah. And people, a lot of people had guns, people had hammers and hatchets, but, like, the amount of people who were using, like, a two-handed okay. woodsman's axe as, like, well, a murder weapon. they were still... using them for massacres. And honestly, I would argue that at that time, an axe was the best per- best weapon for a massacre. It's one hit, one kill, especially when they're sleeping, which they always are. Yeah, that's Okay? Point. The gun, you'll never reload it in time. You're going to shoot one time and literally wake everyone up. To an extent, well, this is 1912. I mean, they've got exactly. Re- yeah, you're gonna wait. You're gonna wake everyone up on the first shot. Definitely. There's just no way you can sneak around a house, separate rooms like this in this instance. Yeah. Uh, the case today, like it was, the house that this took place in, just the size of it in general is astounding. Like you can still visit it today. Uh, the Moore House has turned in to vis- to uh, Velisca's premier tourist attraction, even for a price you can even stay overnight, Andy, if you want to. Uh, I think it's $400 a night now. I think that's what it is. Ooh, nowadays. can we? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, they don't even have plumbing or electricity, though, so... They didn't have Wi-Fi? Fuck this. <laughs> no, they do not have Wi-Fi. Well, you know, as you can imagine, it's marketed as a... as a uh, like a ghost hunter attraction. Oh, yeah. Bring so, your Ouija board. Come right, here, so thing. electricity would affect... You the spirits. Know, spirits. Would throw off the EMPs. <laughs> <laughs> whatever the hell ghosts talk through. Yeah, uh, exactly. Distorted white noise or whatever. I don't know. You've seen BuzzFeed Unsolved. Yeah. It's all all Ghostbusters. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, today uh, it's turned into a tourist attraction. But it's more than just this house surviving that has kept this story alive. For some reason, I I don't know. Maybe it's just um, because it was such a large group of people. Because among all the other axe murders, I I would say eight is the max number of people that have been killed at a time. Involving these family axe murders. I mean, just to have eight people in your home, that's that's a big family already. True. Yeah, even these people had visitors. Yeah, you this know, was still two like of the a, children weren't theirs. It was like a pretty, pretty rural town in Iowa too. Yes, you're gonna have yeah. like a farm. This was like a pretty like a big farming community. A lot of people are gonna have lots of kids, but still eight people in a house. Yeah, and you gotta think too. It's like I think this one. One of the reasons this one has lasted so long is honestly the sheer brutality of it. It wasn't. They weren't all just like one smooth kill and then like yeah done there is some there is some overkill in this case there is kind of like i think prolongs some of the the interest in it no doubt no doubt well i'm interested to get into it i think we've alluded to it enough andy what do you think we uh we hit that intro i think you can do it you do it this time all right i'll do it i'll do it i don't care hit the button that was the day I saw the devil in Valeska. 
just before he hopped the train. Shot me a wink and said, "Hell, I'm gonna miss ya." This town will never be the same. Comes in like a hurricane, leaves in a hurry. Heart full and overcame, he'll never see a jury, and no one will ever know his name. I saw the devil in Villisca just before he hopped a train. And that was the day I saw the devil in Villisca. His soul was black, but his face was clean. He sends his love. Sorry, mischief. By now he's on his way to New Orleans. Comes in like a hurricane, leaves in a hurry. Heart full and overcame, he'll never see a jury. No one will ever know his name. I saw the devil in Villisca just before he hopped the train. I saw the devil in Villisca just before he hopped the train. All right, so let's start on that dreadful night, and then we will dissect this puzzling story. It is unsolved, by the way. Um, I know some people like to know if they're unsolved. There you go. This one is. Yeah. Which makes it even more insane. 1912. 112 years old now, and still unsolved. I mean, they didn't have a lot of the same technologies we have, but they also had a lot of confusing information to deal with. They did, and just so many obstacles. So just after midnight, June 10th, 1912... A stranger picks up an axe that he finds in the yard of a home and then proceeds to sneak in the back door in the little town of Villisca, Iowa. Now, crime wasn't really something they worried about. The population then was only 2,000. It's even less now. I think it's down to 1,300 or so now. Oh, my God. Yeah. This, this really did a number on this town, this whole case. It really did. But then this stranger, this killer, took an oil lamp from a dresser. He removed the glass top and placed it under a chair. Then he bent the wick in half and lit the lamp and turned it down just so it barely lit the house. Now, still carrying the axe, the stranger walked past a room where two girls, ages 12 and 9, were sleeping. And then he went up the stairs that led to two other rooms. He ignored the first one he came to, where four more young children were sleeping, and instead chose the room where 43-year-old Joe Moore was sleeping next to his wife, Sarah Moore. The man brought the blunt side down on the back of Joe Moore's head, crushing his skull and probably killing him instantly. 
Then he must have struck Sarah with the blade of the axe. She was the only one who got struck with the blade of the axe, actually, Andy. Mm -hmm. um, and he must have done this before she could even wake up. Or maybe she woke up and he decided that he needed to make sure that she was a for sure kill. And so he went with the bladed side. But I've heard a lot of theories that this killer was experienced with an axe, which we'll talk about at the end of the show. But if he was, then he would be well aware that a lot of times when you bring that blade of an axe into something, it actually wedges. Yeah, it does. Gets so, pretty stuck. Yes. And so it, it's a lot harder to remove than the blunt side of the axe. Yeah. So I do. I, I'll go ahead and say I do think that she probably did wake up and that's why she got the sharp side. I think it was, oh shit, before she screams, I have to yeah. make sure. Like it's, maybe so or that's just or, my opinion. or she you know she woke up he panicked and just swung and didn't realize true yeah that the axe had twisted in his hand or or whatever. Um, but after killing Joe and Sarah, the killer then returned to the first bedroom to take care of the four more children as they slept. Herman, eleven years old, Catherine was ten, young Boyd was seven, and Paul was five. None of them showed any signs of waking before they died, nor did the killer or any of the four children make enough noise to disturb Catherine's two friends, Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were downstairs. The older of the two, Lena, may have awakened an instant before she was killed because they she was the only one that had a defensive wound on her arm. Yeah. Um, so... She was also in Possibly. a weird position. When she, she was, was in a weird position. He, yeah, she, he, she may have been assaulted in some other way. Yeah. Now, as brutal as this case is, it still really does not outweigh the absurdity of this case, in my opinion, especially for 1912. Um, this one is a whodunit, Andy, for the books, and I'm going to have fun. We're going to have fun talking about the culprits at the end once we get past this horrid actual act that happened here. So after everyone was dead... The Axemen went back upstairs and decided that everyone needed another round. See, this is what you were talking about, Andy. I think he did strike everyone once mm -hmm. and confirmed that they were dead. But then he goes back for another round, striking Joe alone. So he basically goes back in, in the same order. Goes back, starts with Joe, and hits Joe 30 times. Okay? Then goes in order to the other six, seven members of the that were in the household and hits all of them at least 20 times each. Yeah, they, I remember okay, someone just, saying... Just like, think you about even, the cardio. Like, Joe's head was basically gone from the lower jaw up. Like, yeah. he, he was, there was nothing left of his head. And before he did this, he actually pulled a sheet over their heads. A lot of people say to reduce blood splatter. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the common reason for this. Yeah. Um, but uh, honestly, I think it was something bigger than that. I think I think this killer harbored a deep resentment for themselves and was ashamed of what they were doing and did not want to look at them in the did not want to look at their victims in the face. Yeah, and I, there's another re you'll get to this in a minute. But yeah, yeah there's I, I think you're probably right about that. I don't yeah. think they wanted to. I don't think they really wanted to look about what they were doing. Exactly. Exactly. Then this is where it gets weird. He starts going all over the house hanging sheets over every mirror and piece of glass. So like we said, he pulled the sheets over the heads of the victims and then pummeled them some more and then decided to go cover every mirror 
every piece of glass. Yeah, he was. He even covered the windows. He he basically That's covered what I'm saying. every the piece of glass. The whole house was sealed up and like a a black, almost like just a dark room. Just now didn't want any. I'm guessing he didn't want to see himself. No, just did not want to see himself in that in that place, committing that type of crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he just couldn't deal with it. But things get weirder. Then he took a two pound slab. Actually, I think it was four pounds. Oh, I found four, some. Yeah. I found some instances that said four pounds. Uh, he took a four-pound slab of uncooked bacon from the icebox or refrigerator icebox back in the day and wrapped it in a towel. And it was found on the floor of the downstairs bedroom by a keychain that did not belong to the Moore family. Now, <laughs> this slab of bacon, Andy. I've heard some reports about this. Have that you? Are, yeah. What have you heard, Andy? You, you, let's hear what you've heard first. I, I've heard that this uh, uh, this may <clears> have <throat> been used to to simulate uh, uh-huh. another body part ah, for the killer. Very well put, but, sir. Uh, but this was just speculation. This was... Apparently there was no fluids. <laughs> yeah, but this theory just seems a little too prominent, Andy, to not hold some type of weight. Well, this does go hand in hand with what we uh, talked about with the girl, the two guest girls yes. being in different positions. Okay. That's where that, that the downstairs, they were saying he's, may, he, exactly. didn't, he may not touch them, but he may have used this slab of bacon to simulate these girls. So. Yes. Yes, he may have. Because the oldest girl, Lena, the one who was found with the wounds, also was found with her dress up and with no underwear on. Mm-hmm. So her lower half was exposed, but they could not tell that she had been assaulted. There was no signs of assault. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, her sister was at least positioned in a way too that made it look like she was she had been being viewed. Like they said, like her 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 butt had been like kind of like positioned off the bed, and oh, like the lamp was wow. still down there to where both of those girls looked like they were on display almost. Oh, so that's where they were kind of getting it. Like this is where he probably brought that bacon down there and was looking at these two girls. Yeah, like, put them on display. I wonder if this is before or after he washed his hands because there was a there was a also a bowl of water on the counter that had blood in it. Mm-hmm. It looked like he had washed his hand, washed the blood off his hands or maybe his face even probably whatever. Um, but then he began to help himself to a meal. There was evidence of a fully prepared meal on the table and was hardly touched. Yeah. Now, that could be because somebody startled him. Or it could be he just wasn't hungry. Or he was just making a point. Just like, look how long I was here. Yeah, look how just long I was here. Just kind of like playing house. Yeah. I feel like I I still think it. My opinion is I feel like someone may have startled him. Like maybe this he realized that like the sun was coming up and he's like, oh, they got chickens. The roosters are gonna start crowing. The neighbors yeah. are gonna start getting out. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he didn't realize what time it was. And he looked out the window. Right. And he's like, oh shit, sun's coming up. I gotta go. Exactly. So sometime before five a.m., he had left as silently as he'd come, uh, locking the door behind him and taking the keys. Now a little spoiler alert here. I think he didn't he didn't come to the house at all that night. I think he was already there. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm with you there on that. that I really well. do. He was either in the house or he was in the barn on the property or something. I, I think he was already there. I think they, I, I believe he was in the house. I think there was part of the investigation. There was the report that they found like two, uh, uh, in, like burnt cigarettes in the attic. Yeah, cigarette butts in the attic. So yeah. like, yeah, I, I feel like he had been in the house either like the day before or the night before. So. Yeah. So the next morning, the Moors and their guests were not discovered until several hours later. 
when a neighbor noticed that even by 9 a.m., no one was, stor- was stirring at the Murr's home, which was really weird. Usually they were already out. They were doing their chores. They were hanging, you know, hanging clothes on the line, attending to farm animals, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so this neighbor telephoned Joe's brother. His name is Ross and asked him to come check on his brother's family. Now, Ross had, had a key to the house, and he let himself in. Shortly after entering, he comes rushing out again, and he wants to speak to Velisca's marshal, Hank Horton. This was such an old-timey thing, too, just 1912. Like, they didn't have... There was no cell phones. There was no just direct lines. Like Get a lot, the marshal! Like, a lot of people didn't even yeah. have a house phone at this time. <laughs> and, like, he literally runs out, and he's like... Uh, he goes and calls a hardware store, because that's the number he knows. And he's yeah, like... The, yeah. But this happened... That store near is near the police station. He's like... Hey, Michael, run down there, run down to the tent, run down to the marshal. I need you to get him down there. Like it was just such yeah. an old timey thing. It was like there was no way to call nine one one. Right. You had right. to like play a game of telephone to get the police there. Yeah. And uh little good that did though. Cause when old uh Marshall Horton showed up, he did a fantastic job of preserving the crime scene and keeping people out, Andy. Just uh, just sealed uh, oh, wait. up. Just actually, sealed up tight, right? Uh actually, wait, he did the opposite. Okay. Yeah, okay. it was just like a it, fucking open house. Just bring it down. Yeah, just bring yeah, it down. It was like an open house. Uh, Horton brought along doctors J. Clark Cooper and Edgar Howe. Uh, Howe? Howe? Uh, Edgar Howe. And Wesley Ewing, the minister of the local Presbyterian church. Then the county coroner, L.A. Uh, Lindquist, and a third doctor, F.S. Williams, who became the first to examine the bodies and estimate a time of death, they showed up shortly after. Now, when Dr. Williams emerged, he told members of the growing crowd outside, don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it until the last day of your life, end quote. And that was the worst thing to say to a bunch of Iowa rednecks with nothing better to do. You don't want to see like, this. Wow. We're going to see wow, this. Wow, I yeah. definitely want to see this. I want to see that now. <laughs> exactly. And most of them ignored the advice. And close to 100 curious neighbors and townspeople made their way through the House of Horrors like it was a sideshow. They scattering fingerprints everywhere. One person even took a fragment of Joe's skull as a keepsake, dude. Mm. Dude, keep an, eye, like keep an eye on that guy, by the way. This, they literally, this was, all, it made me think of, um, they, they were looking at this almost like, remember how they put Bonnie and Clyde's car on display and people were just like, oh my God, look at this. Let's come by. And That's take still it. on display in Vegas, I believe. And just being like, this was not, they, just this was an of active crime scene. This wasn't yeah. like a, a sideshow that people had brought out to be like, oh, exactly. this, this, it's now a tourist attraction where you can go and look at this place. And like, this is where this all happened. These bodies were still in the house. All the yeah. bodies were still in the beds. The blood was still, like, they had not done anything yet. The, like the, the cop had basically come in and like looked through the house and then be like, I got to get a doctor in here. Yeah. Or and then, three. And then if like immediately the crowd just starts forming and just basically like almost like forming a conga line I mean, through the house. Just right. Being like and you have to understand the, the town has little to no police. Like, they, like this is they, the police. They can't control this crowd of a hundred people. No way. No. Like this guy, he is like he, the police. That's the police. He's yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. so I said, you had to go, you had to call a hardware store to go get the guy to exactly. come down here. Exactly. But the truth is, Andy, though, even before this extreme contamination of the crime scene, they really had no clue who did this. No. They was, really didn't. They they just never heard of a serial killer back then. They just, I mean, it just wasn't in their mind that someone just would randomly do this. There had to be an explanation. There's 2,000 yeah. people live here. Everybody knows everybody. Something, something has to make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like, did the killer, did he live nearby? Um, but... If he didn't and he was leaving town, he had five-hour head start to get out of town, and there was train tracks within walking distance. 
Yeah, this was a tra- um, this and, is a town and this on town the got thirty trains a day, Andy, coming through. God, there. it's like a, it's like a bus station, just in and it, out. You could just it's disappear. Literally a bus station. Yeah. yeah, but they still tried. They took out bloodhounds, which turned up nothing. Um, and after all that, I mean, it's nineteen twelve. I mean, what, what are they left with? Uh, gossip, gossip, and theories. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. So they gossip and basically they prepare. Just in case the killer does live in town, dude. You couldn't buy a lock. You couldn't buy a dang dog or a firearm in that whole damn county. Oh, I'm guaranteed. Like, it's like the it, Night Stalker they case. They scooped it, dude. All them damn hardwares were sold out before before dark. Oh, yeah. I bet that hardware store made a kill. Yeah, like weekend. Sacramento and the, yeah. The Night Stalker case. Yeah, all absolutely. the shelters got cleared out of dogs. We were just going through the countryside, <laughs> rounding up raccoons they thought were dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get something to watch uh, his house. That's a coyote. Close enough. <laughs> that's a possum. Uh, <laughs> that's a mean dog. <laughs> but amidst all the gossip, some some more prominent theories started to surface. Like Donna Jones, daughter-in-law of Iowa State Senator Frank Jones who was widely rumored in Villisca to have had an affair with Joe Moore. Um, it was also rumored that she had an affair with everybody, Andrew. I mean, <clears throat> I'm just saying. That's how you get these rumors uh, started. <laughs> that's what they said. Uh, Frank Jones, though, he was a local businessman and state senator who was also a prominent member of Villisca's Methodist Church. Of course, Andy, a stand-up guy. Absolutely. Uh, though never formally charged with any involvement in the murders, Jones became the subject of a grand jury investigation and a prolonged campaign to prove his guilt, which ended up basically destroying his political career. It, it was bad on this dude. Like, whether if he didn't do it, I feel extremely bad for him. I'm going to put oh, it yeah. to you that way. Like, he got railroaded regardless. Yes. Now, many townspeople were certain that he used his considerable influence and wealth to get rid of Joe Moore and his family. The way they saw it, there were at least two good reasons to believe that Jones hated Joe Moore. Okay, Andy? First off, Joe had worked for him for seven years becoming the star salesman of Jones's farm equipment business. But Moore left in 1907, unhappy, probably because uh, Frank Jones was working him 7 to 11 p.m. six days a week. I mean, that's basically working for yourself. <laughs> exactly. And that's what he said. That's what he figured. He's like, so, I mind's well, set up. And he got became a head-to-head rival of Jones. And he took Jones's most valuable account. You know what that is, Andy? Um, No. John Deere. Nothing runs like a deer. Yeah, that's Michael. right. Just a little company like called John Deere. Would you kill somebody over a John Deere account? Now, would you kill somebody over a John Deere? Maybe. Hey. <laughs> I mean, what's a horsepower on that thing? Would you kill somebody with a John Deere? I mean, that's been That done. is a totally different case. Um, but yeah, so he not only did he leave, he started a, the same business in the same area in a town of 2,000 people, and then you took his biggest account. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a way to put a target on your okay. back. Okay, but still, killing his whole family? I don't know. We'll see. But worse was Moore was believed to have slept with Frank Jones's daughter-in-law, a local beauty whose numerous affairs were well-known in town thanks to her brazen habit of arranging her meetings over the telephone at a time when all calls in Villisca had to be placed to an operator, Andy. God damn so it. somebody knew. That operator is the hottest gossip in the town. <laughs> Seriously. No doubt. He's got fucking story time every night at the bar. Yeah, yeah. Um, And this didn't help things. And by 1912, relations between Jones and Moore had grown so cold that they would literally cross the street to avoid each other. Okay? But again, 
so cold that you would kill his whole family. Like, this is between you and him. Like, I don't, I understand even having more killed. I mean, yeah. he ruined your life, right? He took your livelihood, what, whatever. I don't, I don't condone it, but I can believe it. I can see the but, motive there. But killing his whole family and two innocent girls that just were staying the night, come on. And this brutally. This brutally. Like, yeah, if you're going to kill, if this guy's going to kill. This is, this is not 22s to the head. This is. Yeah. This is, if this guy, to my, in my opinion, if, if Jones is going to kill more, that's going to be like either like an assassination or it's going to look like an accident. Exactly. Or it's going to be one of the, it's going to be something that's not even, like, there's no question this was just like an but accidental see, murder. And okay. He's gone now. Well, this, this would help explain it, right? Because that was the biggest problem I had with Jones. I'm like, okay. And, and also he's 57 years old, not an old man by any stretch of the imagination, but he still swinging an axe 30 to 20 times per person. Yeah. Is that a 57 year old activity? I don't know. So, but that didn't stop people. That didn't stop people from accusing him. They just assumed that he paid someone else to do it. He's I mean, got he's money. a man of influence. Yeah, right? he's got the money. Yeah, he's a state senator. He's a business owner. He's got the money. Um, that was the theory of James Wilkerson, an agent of the renowned Burns Detective Agency, who in 1916 announced that Jones had hired a killer by the name of William Mansfield to murder the man who had humiliated him. Wilkerson was able to show that Mansfield had the right background for the job, and in 1914, he was the chief suspect in the axe murders of his wife, her parents, and his own child in Blue Island, Illinois. Unfortunately for Wilkerson, Mansfield turned out to have a cast-iron alibi for the Velisca killings. Payroll records showed that he had been working several hundred miles away in Illinois at the time of the murders, and he was released for lack of evidence. Uh, I mean, that's pretty good alibi. We do know that that's they're, damn good they're very close to the railroad tracks. He's very, he could get in and out of there in, the, in, a, in a day or so to get back in the, into the payroll. But yeah. I, this scene, if, if it was him, that seems like a lot of work to try and like, make sure you're a hundred or so miles away, get back, kill this family and then get back without but, nobody ever know. Like that just seems like a lot of work. But also this alibi is so damn tight. Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's like this state senator can easily fudge some work records. I mean, it's 1912, people. We don't have them coming in on surveillance, scanning a key card even. You, you don't you don't know. Yeah, like I said, it's it's it seems like a lot of work, but you're right. It does it 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 opens it up shit. like it opens up holes to be like, well, that could be easily fudged. Absolutely. These are 1912. Especially with a man records. of power. Yeah. Yeah. But that didn't stop locals, including Ross Moore and Joe Stillinger, father father of the two Stillinger girls from believing that Jones was guilty. So, let's see let's see who else looks good for this Andy. Okay. Here's a, here's a here's a good culprit. I don't believe this is our guy, but he's still worth a mention. The Reverend Lynn Kelly. And uh he's an he's an eccentric Presbyterian preacher. Eccentric is he's a good word. He's eccentric. You know how we say in the South. He's eccentric like Rock Terrio's eccentric. <laughs> exactly. Uh <laughs> he was known to make a few folks uncomfortable if that's what you're getting to, Andy. Um, and at one point in time, he confessed to murdering the family, uh, but but he recanted. Okay, let let's let's dissect that a little bit. So here's some insight on the uh, uncomfortable part. Lynn Kelly placed an ad in the Omaha World Herald looking for a quote girl stenographer. Okay. Unquote. That's literally how it was how it was phrased. Now, as, after asking for more info on the job, a young woman named Jasmine Hodgson received a full page reply. A full multi-page reply. I'm sorry. Multiple pages. This is important here. Yeah, this is multiple and, pages, like, typed out, single-spaced. Yeah. And among other disturbing things, these this report told her that she would be required to type in the nude. 
Andy? Obviously. Obviously. Why would you think you would get to wear clothes? I mean, I'm not going to provide you with a uniform. <laughs> and you can't bring one. No, there is no uniform. <clears throat> that, yeah. that, that actually is the uniform. There is yeah. no uniform. So that's that was a big red flag. Um, spoiler alert. She did not take the job. Oh, really? Yeah. really? Great. Yeah. She, she Benefits just not good? Not <laughs> no, great? No, it's just not worth it, man. It, it was the drive. <laughs> it was terrible. It was, the, it was the distance. You can't justify it. Um, but Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, he was an English immigrant, uh, a preacher, and a well-known sexual deviant, okay, with well-documented mental problems as well. He was in town on the night of the murders and freely admitted that he had left on a dawn train just before the bodies were discovered. So this guy's like not even trying to not make himself. See, let's see why I had to mention him. I oh, don't no. think it's him still. But he, he, he wanted to be a part of this. He, like, inputs himself into this case. He did. And and the police pushed it a little bit. Now, now there were some things about Kelly that made him seem, um, how do you say, improbable. Like okay. the fact that he was 5'2 and 119 pounds. Andy. Short King! Yeah. Um, I mean, just saying. Just the brutality. And then, also, I don't know if I mentioned it, but there is still an imprint in the wall of the house, okay, where the axe was swung up backwards. Yeah. Now, this imprint is way up near the ceiling. I just don't think a man of 5'2 no, is, is, uh, is going to hit up that high on the ceiling. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. And they say he was like 5'2", because one of the reports said that there were marks from the, like the basically the axe in the ce- like right up towards the ceiling yeah, or in yeah. the ceiling in some rooms, and there was you, dust particles there are, the, from the ceiling on the bed. Yes. So, now, like, yeah. That's there, a, and there are tons of... Um, YouTubers and stuff who have stayed the night in this house already. Like I said, you, 400 bucks a month, you can too. Um, and documented that. So there's tons of videos on YouTube where you can see that spot even now. I think BuzzFeed Unsolved even stayed in there. Old Shane and uh, uh, Ryan. I think so, yeah. Yeah, they stay, They they have an episode on it and they show the the mark in the wall. So, And you can also get a good feel for how small that house is and how incredible it would be to not wake anyone up. Yeah, and kill everyone a, in secession with an axe. It's pretty yeah, this crazy. It's like a hand-built house in like rural Iowa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, being five foot two, 119 pounds, yeah, it doesn't sound like Kelly would fit the bill. But there are some things that did line up evidence-wise. Not very much, but he was left-handed, and the coroner determined that the blood's from the blood splatter that the killer probably was left-handed. Um, Kelly was also obsessed with sex and had been caught peering into windows in Velisca two days before the murders, okay? But to be fair, around that time, being any type of sexual deviant at, or even just being into outer... What, what, any what, sort of kink or... Uh, yeah, sectory. anything like that during that time, you're going to be you're gonna be labeled as a psycho you like are if you're gonna... coming out with this shit. And he had a past of mental instability and people knew that. Yes, but y- yes, but he was also like I said he was caught peeping in windows. Like this he was. was this wasn't like a consensual thing with somebody. This Very was, true. He was peeping into pe- under on people's windows. This was a peeping tom back in the right, day. Right. Right. Now, now there were links between Lynn Kelly, Reverend Lynn Kelly and the Moore family. Uh most sinister being was the fact that Kelly had attended the Children's Day service held at Velisca's Presbyterian Church on the evening of the murders. Now, this service was organized by Sarah Moore herself and her children. They were kind of starring in this, putting this whole thing together. Uh, many in Velisca believe that Kelly spotted the family in the church that day and just became obsessed with them, and that he had spied on the Moore household as they went to bed that evening. Now, the idea that the killer had laid in wait for the Moors to go to sleep was supported by evidence, Andy, which we alluded to earlier. 
Um, one, there was an impression of some bales of hay stored in the family barn. And where this impression was, where it looked like a body had been up against, um, there was a knot hole through which the murderer could have watched the house while reclining and chilling. Yeah, basically just like a little lookout place. Yes. And also, um, in the attic of the home, there were cigarette butts, as, as me and Andy alluded to earlier. So whoever was there was there for a minute. They were yeah. chilling. They were chilling. So, um, Also, Lena Stillinger had been found wearing no underwear. And with her nightdress drawn, her nightdress drawn up past her waist, like we talked about. Now, a lot of people jumped on board the Kelly train when they found out that there was sexual motive. Yeah, and like I said, I, I, when you say he was like obsessed with this family, that was one of the theories. I, I still, my opinion is, I feel like it was the two Stillinger girls who the the killer was actually obsessed with, or who mm-hmm. he was targeting, because like there's just so much evidence pointing towards like they were staged, like they were taken like extra care with. They were right. They were in a different room than the rest of the family. They were downstairs, like, and the rest of the family was upstairs in their bedrooms. Something about it just makes me feel like he either saw those two girls and wanted them and then realized he has to take out this whole other family as well. So I'm thinking maybe he followed them home thinking like, are these girls going home? No, they're staying with this family. Like, I guess I got to kill this whole family now. I don't think it was I got to. I think he was watching them and was like, here's an opportunity to get two more. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, like I said, especially being children. Like if it was two more adults in the house, that'd be different. Yeah. That'd be a completely different scenario. But you had two more kids. And they're sleeping separate from everyone else. Yeah. And these two, like, these are two of the tween aged girls. So, yeah. So, it took some time for this case against Reverend Kelly to get anywhere. But in 1917, another grand jury finally assembled to hear the evidence linking him with at least Lena's murder. At first glance, the case against Kelly seemed compelling. He had sent bloody clothing to the laundry in nearby Macedonia. And an elderly couple recalled meeting the preacher when he got off a 5.19 a.m. train from Villisca that June, on June 10th. And he told them that gruesome murders had been committed in the town of Villisca. A hugely incriminating statement, especially since he had just left Villisca three hours before the killings were discovered. Yeah, man. How'd you, uh, how'd you get that information by the fact that you left before anybody else knew? Uh, exactly, exactly. Now, it also emerged that Kelly had returned to Villisca a week later and shown great interest in the murders, even posing as a Scotland Yard detective to obtain a tour of the Moore house. He was English, by the way, so. I mean, that was pretty easy to con right back then. Yeah. But like, at the same time, it's like, what what Iowa police officer was like, oh, yeah, obviously Scotland Yard has heard of this and <laughs> sent Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> sent their smallest guard. <laughs> sent their smallest detective to help out. <laughs> Oh, my God. But O. Kelly was arrested, finally, in 1917. The Englishman was repeatedly interrogated and, honestly, probably beaten. But he eventually signed a confession to the murder in which he stated, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to mind, and I picked up the axe and went into the house, and I killed them. End quote. Now, later he recanted this, and he also claimed uh, police brutality. So this, I feel like there's a little bit of weight to this, Andy. I feel like they cornered this man and made him confess at this point because, I mean, 1917, this is five years, or this is a whole year later, and they still haven't caught this person. Oh, this is, no, this is five years five later. Five years later, I'm sorry, 1912. Yeah, this, this is five years later. I'm man. sorry, yeah. 
Five years later, and they still haven't caught. So the heat is still on, dude. Five yeah. years later in this town, in this, you don't even have a lead. And so, yeah, I feel like they really put the pressure on this guy. And and they could have even, they could have even coerced the uh, witnesses on the train because later they recanted too. They mm-hmm. even changed their story. So with literally nothing to tie him to the killings, the first uh, grand jury to hear Kelly's case, it hung 11 to 1 in favor of refusing to indict him. And then the second panel freed him altogether. Like I said, he did show up There's in court. It's just not enough, man. They, they said he showed up in court. He seemed kind of disheveled. He had a bruise on his cheek. and But his confession... He does like like the, the information that he was giving people and the way he was talking about the crime and how heavily he was focused on it. Something I, I it's just my opinion. Something about Kelly does seem like he may fit the the actual bill because like his just his confession came out so like clearly. I feel like the, these people almost like knew he did it and they were like just now, fucking say it. Now there is a possibility, Andy, that there's more than one culprit there and is he was true. one of them. Like I believe possibly, but yeah, his, his involvement, his, like his background, his history, him being there that night, seeing the family at the event and yeah. then disappearing at 5, 19 AM the next morning. And then coming right back that following week because he was so interested in this case. Like, yeah. It just, I don't know. Something but about But why would him, you do that if you did it? Why would you be so interested in the case? Because he's, he's clearly mentally unstable. He's clearly got mental health, health issues. And if he yeah. really believes that like God told him to do this or, you know, he was following the words of God. I don't believe, I don't God, believe that, re- that, uh, that confession. I just think it was all coerced. Like, I feel like there's like, I don't know. It's something about it. I feel like there's a, there's a speck of truth to it in there just to be like, maybe this guy did it. But at the same time, it's like either he did it or he witnessed it almost like he was there. Or something, maybe he came in later and just Maybe found he was it. peeking through their windows as it was happening. Exactly. Maybe he was peeping trying to see these girls and saw this. Oh maybe that's God. why. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, you there was somebody. Maybe there was somebody in the barn. And maybe oh. there was somebody in the barn. Now, and maybe now, there was somebody in the house. Now, I believe him for that, right? Like, he, he showed up right after the murders or maybe even during and saw the bodies in the house. Yeah. But or, then again, the killer was uh, allegedly covered the windows and mirrors and whatnot, but... Uh, but yeah, I don't know. He he's a creep for sure. Like he's he's not completely innocent. That's for sure. No, he's not. But on to the next culprit, Andy. There's more. There is a lot more. Uh, the next culprit is convicted axe murderer Henry Lee Moore. He was uh he was actually the favorite by the Department of Justice. They believe he committed a total of like thirty similar murders across the Midwest in 1911 to 1912, and that may be so. Um, the fact remains that in 1911 and 1912, a bizarre chain of axe murders suggested that a transient serial killer was at work. Um, but I don't think it was Henry Moore. Uh, the researcher Beth Clingingsmith has suggested that as many as 10 incidents uh, that occurred close to railway tracks as far as Rainier, Washington, and Monmouth, Illinois, might be part of this chain. And in several cases, there are striking similarities to the Velisca murders. Now, the pattern began with the murder of a family of six in Colorado Springs in September of 1911 and continued in both Monmouth, where the murder weapon was actually a pipe, not an axe, and in Ellsworth, Kansas. Then, Paola, Kansas, where someone murdered Rollin Hudson and his wife just days before the killings in Villisca. Now, the slaughter culminated in December of 1912 with the brutal murders of Mary Wilson and her daughter, Georgia Moore, in Columbia, Missouri. Now, that one we know was Henry Lee Moore. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but their theory was that Moore, George's son and a convict with a history of violence, was responsible for this whole series of murders just because he killed his family. Okay, so he just basically was like almost They're like, like you were an axe murderer before. You probably did it all, 30 times. You probably did all of these axe murders. Yeah, it was like back in yeah. the day where they were like, well, you did this one time, and if we have another crime anywhere else that's similar to this that we yeah. that we don't think that's That's not that happened. far from here. You could have went there. Yeah, it's one of those crimes. It's, it's something like a brutal family massacre where they're like, well, that just doesn't happen, and you did that somewhere else, so you also must have done that one. Exactly. Like, other people can massacre families too. <laughs> like, yeah. this is America. All right, now speaking of other crimes and their similarities to the Velisca murders. Uh, Blanche Wayne of Colorado Springs may have been the first victim of the Midwest serial killer. If, if we're calling this a serial killer, Andy, which I do believe there was a serial killer at this time, maybe not responsible for all of them, not all these 30 cases or whatnot, but a lot of them. Yeah. Now Blanche was killed in her bed in September of 1911 by an ax wielding man who heaped bedclothes on her head and then also stopped to wash his hands and left the axe at the scene, just like in Velisca. Now, the use of an axe in almost every case was perhaps not so remarkable in itself, Andy, because while there certainly was an unusual concentration of axe killings in the Midwest at this time, almost every family in these districts owned one. Yeah. You know, and and where do you leave it? You leave it out by the damn woodpile. It's it's outside, Mm -hmm. right? And so some considered the axe a weapon of convenience. Yeah, it's like, what do you see when you're approaching the house? Oh, there's the axe by the wood pile out there. Let me just get that. Exactly. Yet some other similarities among the crimes are much harder to explain away. Uh, in as many as seven of the cases, there was railroad tracks nearby. In three, uh, including Velisca, the murders took place on a Sunday night. Now, four of the cases, Payalo, Velisca and Rainier, and a solid and a solitary murder that took place in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, featured killers who covered their victims' faces. Three murders had washed at the scene, and at least five of the killers had lingered in the murder house afterwards, preparing meals or doing weird shit. I think there was at least one or two that also had the mirrors and the glass covered. Yes. So I was yeah, there was a there was at least one or two of those like family massacres yep. that had all the glass in the house covered. Yes. It just kind of led to this other similarity. Exactly. Um now perhaps one of the most striking instances uh was two other homes had been lit by lamps in which the chimney had been laid aside in the same way where it wouldn't be broken and then the wick bent down just as it had been at Velisca. Mm-hmm. Almost to make like a flashlight. Yep, yep. And the Paola murders have more in common with Velisca than the killer's use of a lamp. In both cases, for example, odd incidents occurred the same night that suggest that the killer may have attempted to strike twice. In Velisca, at 2 a.m. on the night of the murder, telephone operator Xenia Delaney heard strange footsteps approaching up the stairs and an unknown hand tried to unlock her door. While in Paola, a second family was awakened in the dead of night by a sound that turned out to be a lamp chimney falling to the floor. Rising hurriedly, the occupants of the house were just in time to see the unknown man escaping through a window. You know, that has been fucking terrifying. Oh, yeah, especially back in those times. You just come into your house and you see like this, the the oil lamp on the floor and a dark shadow jumps through the window. Seriously. Now, perhaps the spookiest of all similarities was the strange behavior of the unknown murderer 
of William Showman and his wife, Pauline, and their three children in Ellsworth, Kansas, on October 1911. Not only was a chimneyless lamp used to illuminate the murder scene, but a little heap of clothing had been placed over the showman's telephone, which was a Western Electric Model 317 telephone, one of the most popular in the Midwest in 1911 and 1912. And some people noted it was maybe because it has human features. That's like, creepy. It's one of the old, like, uh... Phones where you grab the little ear thing off the side and then you stand there and talk yeah. into the front. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, when you hang it up, it looks like it has ears on the side and then it has two bells for eyes yep. at the top. And then the part that you speak into looks like a nose. Yep. I've seen those old phones. You yeah. know, so uh, yeah, you, you guys can check it out, look it up. But yeah. Anyways, what, re- what really matters, Andy, is that I know who the killer is. Thank God. Yeah. So, again, I have solved another case for you guys. Just like I did the Marilyn Monroe case on Patreon, now I'm solving this case as well. We've really got to get you involved in something more more important in life. I do. I need to write some books. I need to get you, like, like Michael, the medium. <laughs> I think I'm about as important as I want to be, Andy. I think I'm good. <laughs> Made you solving real crimes. On but CBS. Your answer, Andy, lies in the book The Man from the Train which is a 2017 true crime book written by Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James. Okay, In The Man from the Train, they claim to have discovered the identity and existence of a previously overlooked serial killer that was active in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And this criminal was Paul Mueller, who operated throughout North America and killed a minimum of 59 people and possibly over 100. Speculated, 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 but still, big numbers. Seriously. Yeah, James suspected that it was a possible serial killer at Villisca just based on the actions. It was those of a practice criminal. It didn't seem like the first time. No, no, exactly. And he found some similar crimes in period newspapers and brought on his daughter, Rachel McCarthy, who found even more. And things started to add up. Now, via newspaper archives, the Jameses discovered scores of murders of entire families committed from 1898 to 1912. These crimes occurred in Nova Scotia, Oregon, Kansas, Florida, Arkansas, and all over the place, some of which they attribute to Mueller, quite a few actually. Though many of these crimes earned significant publicity in their time, they have mostly faded, except for the Velisca murders. Mueller's name was linked to only one crime in contemporary media. He was the subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family near West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. Wasn't he? Wasn't this another? This is probably like, when he started. It's it, like dude. another family massacre with like a either mm-hmm. like an axe or something like that too. And it's like, well, you were linked to one of these crimes. Like, again, it's like, it's the, the same thing. Yeah, to, <laughs> you were linked to one of them. I mean, I know you weren't convicted, but linked. Hmm. I mean, yeah. good enough for me. I mean, that's a link. <laughs> Uh, but Mueller was about 35 years old in 1897 and reportedly claimed to be a German military veteran and was known as a skilled carpenter who spoke very little English. He was described as short and muscular in stature, with unusually small and widely spaced teeth, which were his most distinctive feature. Ugh. Mueller is believed to most likely have worked as a lumberjack, given his woodworking skills and the killer's use of an axe, and the fact that most of the murders occurred in or near logging areas. A number of murders were assumed by local police to be one-off incidents, but the Jameses believe that they were actually committed by a single person, probably Mueller, based on about 30 similarities 
many of which show up in these crimes. Similarities like the scene being within a short distance from a railroad, where Mueller was suspected to have fled by freight hopping. Uh, the slaughter of the entire families late at night in small towns with little or no police force. The families having a barn where the killer was believed to have hidden to observe the families. The killers having no dog to warn of an intruder. Uh, the killer using the blunt edge of an axe as a murder weapon. Uh, the killer leaving the axe in plain sight. The killer covering victims with sheets or blankets prior to the murders to prevent blood splatter. The killer moving or stacking bodies after the murders. And the killer covering windows from inside the house with sheets or towels. And the absence of robbery, no cash or jewelry was ever disturbed at any of the scenes. That is a big tale. Yeah. I mean, motive-wise, that's a big tale. When you can tell, you go into the master bedroom or whatever, and none of the drawers are opened. Right. Nothing's gone through. It's like, let's say you're a paid assassin. If you're killing everyone in the house, why not take what you want? Or at least make it look like it was a robbery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're you're a trained assassin or something like that, you make it look like it was something else. Yeah. It doesn't look like it was an assassination. Exactly. Exactly. Now, in early cases, the killer often attempted arson before leaving, is what they found, but gradually abandoned the practice, possibly because it brought immediate attention to the scene, which yeah. would make sense. That's a lot harder to get away, you know? And you want to have that window of time to where, like, I've killed them, and now I've ha- I have hours now until I've they're the train. Yeah, it's and like, you've been on a train for hours. You're yeah. miles and miles away. So... The killer's primary motive is believed to have been sadistic sexual attraction to prebubescent girls. While adults were typically ambushed and murdered in bed while sleeping, girls often showed defense wounds or other evidence of struggle. Media reports included veiled references to the killer having ejaculated at the crime scene or his having molested the girls after death. The slab of bacon at the Velisca scene, possibly used as a masturbation aid, would be along those lines. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would fit that bill. They would, I'm saying they would link those two yeah. as similar. Uh, the Jameses feel certain that Mueller committed 14 family murders, totaling at least 59 victims. If accurate, these totals would place Mueller right up there with Samuel Little, the American serial killer with the most confirmed victims, who was convicted of 60 and claimed 93. Oh, I think, uh, I'm pretty sure Samuel Little probably has about 93. Yeah, it's just such a weird number. 93, why would you say 93? with the way of him being like, oh yeah, I'm just like, if you've looked into him, how he's basically just drawing pictures of every single one of his victims from his photographic memory, and then they're going back and finding these bodies. I'm like, yep, I killed this person there with this kind of way. And just like him, just literally just handing over pictures, being like, yep, Yep. this is the next one. And this is the next one. (laughs) Yep. And like almost like all of them have been like proven. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. I did a lot. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, apparently, according to the Jameses, uh, Mueller did too. Now, I, I found this interesting, Andy. Remember a few weeks ago, I sent you a case that I said I'd like to cover for Sandu. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hinterkaifeck murders in Germany. Now, they think he looks good for this too. These murders happened in 1922. Uh, the murders bear some real similarities to the U.S. crimes, including the slaughter of an entire family in the isolated home, the bodies being moved after the killings, a young girl among the victims, and use of the blunt edge of the axe, and no robbery. Now, Mueller described it. <clears throat> Again, Mueller was described as a German immigrant in contemporary media. Maybe he departed the U.S. for his homeland after people began to notice and publicize patterns in family murders across the U.S. 
We also have to think this is, you know, post like, at the time when Mueller was in America and by the time that this, the Hinter Kaifek murders, World War One has happened. Yep. So if this is a German immigrant, he may have been called back to service in Germany. So at this time, he may have just stayed. Like, if they, like a lot of immigrants at that time went back to their countries to fight. Yeah. So th- this man may have been in America at the time of these murders and then gone back to Germany around this time. Or Absolutely. After that. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't read the book. I would like to. And I, and I think I will, honestly, after after reading this, after reading these summaries and whatnot of it, because I, I this is it's crazy. If this guy really did travel around in the late 1800s, early 1900s, killing people like... He, this guy is bigger than H.H. H. Holmes as far as, like, the terror that he spread. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's unreal. Now, due in part to improved communication technology, observers increasingly noted similarities between the crimes over the years. Nationwide attention came following the brazen 1911 murder of the two families in a single night in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and a similar family murder weeks after, a few hundred miles away in neighboring Kansas. And by the 1912 Velisca murders, it was widely suspected that it was widely suspected a single traveling assailant might be to blame, though the term serial killer wasn't even a thing yet. Oh, at this point, that was just a demon traveling the countryside, basically. Yeah, pretty much, I think it was just the devil. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. this was like unheard of. This was a monster. This was yep. a, like just something like a war criminal or something. I mean, to not have any motive. I mean, you don't even want money. It's like you're not even you're not even in hard times, you know what I mean? You're just you're just evil going around smashing families and children, man. It's like it's unheard of. Imagine the terror it must have struck into people. Exactly. You saw how like nobody everybody in town was going out and buying guns and locks and dogs yeah. and like this was actual fear and at the time, like you said, this this was a time before serial killer. This was a time before the FBI and the time before people had actually looked like done research into these people. Yep. So when there was like no motive, when they were like, well, nothing was, there was no robbery. There was no, there was no direct slight against this person to provoke yeah. this. Like there was no previous attack of, there was nothing that we could ever concrete them to like, why would this happen? Yep. Cause I just didn't know that some people were just monsters. Like some That's people right. were just fucked up. Some people were broken. And like that was yeah. not even a thing back then. Yeah, it's like at this point, like they couldn't even like they couldn't even catch like a a, a whiff of like any reason why this. Not would even be a there. whiff. Not even there, no. There was no. There was no. There was no scent to follow. There was no. There was no hot trail. <laughs> no, there was no. Oh my Gaia. <gasps> I see what you did there. That would have been an easy way to figure it out. <laughs> what do you think our? Uh, what do you think old Mueller would have wore if he had? Oh my Gaia. I'm gonna go ahead and say lumberjack. Definitely lumberjack. I'm gonna. I feel you like that. I feel like his it. face is on the cover. His <laughs> wide ass teeth. <laughs> Halloween edition. Oh my guy. <laughs> Lumberjack. Apparently he looked uh, like a jack-o'-lantern. Fucking oh awesome. yeah. Especially like his description, like small, small teeth, yeah. wide or like wide space teeth. Like, yeah. like a jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> oh, sheesh. Yeah, for real. <coughs> but, uh, he could have used some Oh My Gaia though still. Oh, you don't absolutely. you don't have to be handsome to wear Oh My Gaia. It, it helps everybody, right? It helps you be the best you. Oh My Gaia is an innovative all-natural deodorant fragrance and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while still maintaining effectiveness. And at Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients, guys. And there's tons of scents to choose from, like Lumberjack, if you're into that kind of thing, or Leather. There or there's also there's also more you know more feminine scents like uh, what vanilla cherry almond lavender lavender, lavender. oh that's nice uh, lemongrass Egyptian musk coconut 
All kinds of stuff, guys. We even have our own scent here at True Crime, guys. If you don't know where to start, get you a jar of True Crime Pine. Put that stuff in your pits and just go around smelling amazing and not being contaminated by aluminum. Mm-hmm. You, know? walking up to you, like, you, you smell like a true crime guy. You smell, <laughs> you smell like a true crime guy. But because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the code CREEPER for 15% off your order at shop underscore omigaya on Instagram or omigaya.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com. Don't forget to use code word CREEPER for 15% off your order. All right. And guys, please don't forget to check out Patreon, patreon.com slash true crime guys, where you can get access to everything we make here. If you want to support the show, that is the number one way to do it. We appreciate you very much. Um, If you sign up on the $2 tier, you get access to every Patreon exclusive that we have ever done way back to 2017. And at the $5 tier, you get access to everything we've ever done, Andy. Everything. All the things. Sandu stories. Strange shorts when that was a thing. Five-minute murders with Lauren. Higher thoughts. Uh, Sandu stories. Uh, Sandu proper episodes. There's all kinds of stuff on there. Everything that's been done is done. It's there, guys. Hundreds of audio files for your listening pleasure at patreon.com slash truecrimeguys. It's cheaper than Netflix. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's cheaper than a Starbucks coffee. Um, I want some coffee right now. We but. honestly need to raise our prices. <laughs> <laughs> Inflation's a bitch. <laughs> it is. We are not raising our prices, but all of our things that we have to pay are going up. So anyways, uh, thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review wherever you're listening. Uh, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcast or whatever, leave a review. That really helps other listeners find the show. And uh, give us a follow on social media at True Crime Guys, wherever you're at on social media, and be sure to subscribe on that YouTube channel. All right. Anything else, Andy? I don't think so, man. I think we got a we have full week. We got Super Bowl done. We got Patreon out of the way. We got That's a right. Whole free month episodes coming. That's right. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you next week with another freebie. Until then, keep on creeping. Bye. Bye.